a listener production. This is From Zero, conversations with business founders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost a billion dollars annually. People ask me all the time, how do we start the business? And now I want to turn the tables. In this episode, I speak to Paul Bassett, the legendary founder of Seek.com and SquarePeg. I just want to be involved, working with great people, doing interesting things. It will always be around, I think, the the great bug will be around disruptive technology, um, founders, um, people, you know, taking risks, pursuing dreams. Maybe more of that 10 years, 20 years from now might be as much social enterprises as for-profit businesses. Who knows? Paul Bassett is a titan of Australian business. Paul was raised in Melbourne with his older siblings, Andrew and Sally. The Bassett family was really close. And as the child of migrant parents, Paul always had an acute awareness of where he came from and what it took for his family to provide for him. So mum was, was born in Poland, was, was a child survivor of the Holocaust. I mean, an amazing story in itself for her to survive. And she's just published a book in the last, in the last six months, which is, I think is, is amazing. Um, dad, born in Egypt, came here as a, as, as a teenager lived in various parts of Africa as a young kid um, and then came to Australia and, and they met here. Two siblings, Andrew, who you know, co-founded Sequist, Sally, my older sister, who lives in, who lives in Israel and is five and a half years older than me. And look, it was, I would say, you know, the story of mum's survival and stuff wasn't pervasive. It was something we were very conscious of, aware of. It wasn't kind of pervasive or the defining family story, if you like, which I think sometimes you do hear that in, in stories of Holocaust, in families of Holocaust survivors, where it's very hard for really the entire family move beyond that. That certainly wasn't the case for us, but it was something we were, you know, we we're absolutely aware of. Um, and obviously, you know, you develop a greater appreciation, understanding of as, as you get older. How old would you, was your mum when she came to Australia? So did, did she live through the entire war uh, in Poland or had she come sort of midway through? Yeah, no, she came to Australia and I think it would have been about 1947, 1948. She was born in 1939, so April 39, born in Poland. So that the odds of being born in, as a Jew in Poland in April 39 and surviving is, is obviously incredibly long odds. And uh, she came here with her mother, who also survived, and two other family members from a very large extended family. They were the only four members of, of her extended family that survived the Holocaust. They came here in, in uh, I think it would have been probably 1948 when she was about nine years old, you know, through the, the normal process of applying for, for, you know, to become a refugee and getting sponsored and, and able to come in Australia and build their life build their life in Melbourne. Growing up as a kid, were you entrepreneurial at a young age? Was this something that, that you thought might be a path for you or, or was it – were there side hustles or was it, was it, were you always sort of more destined to become a professional? Look, not, I wouldn't say unusually so. I mean, the one entrepreneurial thing I did when I was at, was at uni, there was a, there was a guy, an amazing singer called Hemi, who used to sing at the beer garden in Surface Paradise. And I was introduced to him through a friend and, and, and Andrew and Sharon, my now wife, then girlfriend, we kind of brought him down to Melbourne. We organized you know, two or three concerts where he played at, uh, at a bar in Melbourne, it actually was it went great, and it funded it funded an overseas trip that Sharon and I then Sharon and I then did. So that was really the only 
the only entrepreneurial thing I can think of. No, it is the only entrepreneurial thing I did before before we started Seek in 1997. So it wasn't like it wasn't specifically in the DNA. What was the What was the revenue from the concept? Do you remember? I don't know, but I reckon we made something like a couple of thousand dollars each. So it was, it was it was a good it was a good outcome. It was a lot of fun. I mean, I remember you know it would have worked out on an hourly basis. I remember hours and hours and hours walking walking around Melbourne Uni, and and Sharon would have been doing the same at Monash, and Andrew was I think it was at Melbourne, then I can't remember, but putting up posters on all the bollards, you know, all the bollards around the uni and stuff like that. So it was a fair bit of fair bit of work involved. It was it was a lot of fun. It was a it was a you know, it was a very different experiences as a student you must have done uh, obviously very humble but you must have done incredibly well at school because you end up doing law commerce at, at melbourne uni which was probably top one percent of students would, would get in there before i think you end up working at, at arnold block labeler uh, as an article clerk and a lawyer uh, did you expect law to be your journey obviously incredible 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 student incredible good, good marks and and top tier for, or certainly top tier in terms of uh, ability and, and, and recognition. Did you think you'd be a lawyer for life, or was this always a bit of a means to an end? Look, I don't know that there was there was a you know there was a particular plan. I mean, I think from a school perspective, I was a pretty relaxed, pretty laid back student. And then in year twelve, it sort of clicked about it. And, and I think you do see this with a lot of kids, particularly boys where kind of that work ethic kicks in a little bit later. And so for me, probably the one and only year of school that I worked really hard was 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 uh, year 12. And I worked hard and I focused and I got pretty good results. And then there was no real conscious, again, like, I mean, I see it through the lens of my kids and their friends and peers and stuff. It's really hard, you know, you're 18, you have the sense you want to study, you want to go to uni, you don't really have a clear idea of, of what you want to do. And so law commerce was kind of a sort of a, I don't know, sort of a, you know, a path I went down, I would say, without a, a, a massive amount of thought. Um, I didn't have a, you know, when I, I remember when I was studying at uni and I didn't love the study of law, I, I quite enjoyed it. I probably wasn't the most focused student at uni. I didn't necessarily think I would I would go and work as a lawyer, but again, sort of no real clear idea about what I would do if I didn't work as law. So it was a very obvious and easy career path if you wanted to apply for articles with law firms, which is what I ultimately did. It was probably more the absence of clarity around other paths that, that, that drove that decision. Um, and then I think I was really lucky with the choice of firm where I ended up at, at ABL because it was a very entrepreneurial firm. A lot of um, uh, people had come to Australia, you know, as, as migrants had built amazingly successful businesses. They were, you know, interesting, big personalities. You got a lot of responsibilities. A young lawyer at ABL, uh, you're interacting with these incredibly interesting people. And, and so that was a, you know, I certainly enjoyed the practice of law, particularly the sort of work I was doing, which was sort of corporate work, much more than perhaps I might have expected. And, and you know, if the idea for Seek hadn't have come along in, in 97, who knows where, what path I would have gone down. Um, but obviously things sort of, you know, panned out a certain way. My career's gone in a certain direct career and life have gone in a certain direction. And, and I've been really lucky with, with the, you know, the three different, three different careers I've had. So let's fast forward to 1997, and, and I think you went to an auction on a, in a Melbourne suburb, which, which by chance was a street I, I lived in as a kid. Uh, and you had this random idea of creating an online real estate website, uh, which which obviously became a jobs website. Uh, but let's let's stick with the real estate version for a start. How did how did you even have that? What even made you think of starting a website? This is back in 97 when Amazon was 
two years old. So this is before before anyone really even used the internet to any big degree, yet you're already thinking, I can create a commercial, I'm a lawyer, but I can create a, a website that can make money. How did, you jo- how did you join those dots? Look, and again, I mean, this is where I think there's a lot of, there is a lot of serendipity here. And I think for, for a lot of people in there, when they talk about their career story, there's things that have happened, you know, by, by, by chance um, and, and really fortunate. And so the backstory, I guess, was in about 1995, um, Evan Thornley called me up one day and Evan, I'd been at uni with, with Evan, I knew Evan and his then wife Tracy pretty well, uh, they were very involved in student politics, uh, both of them and Evan rang me one day, we were, we were, you know, we were super close mates but we knew each other really well and, and had a really good relationship at uni and I thought, you know, you know, great, great, great people, are great people and um, he rang me and I said, oh, I'm setting up an internet company, I need a lawyer. And I truthfully, this is in 1995, I didn't know what, what the internet was. I had this fad, well, that probably didn't, that made me the, you know, the, that was probably the 99% of the population who didn't know what the internet was. I had this vague, vague notion of the information superhighway, which is a term that a lot of people were, were, were using. And, and as I started using the web and started talking to Evan, and, you know, bear in mind, a few months later, the Netscape IPO occurred, I think something like, August to September 95 and then Yahoo went public and everyone started talking about the, the internet and you know even off the low base the growth was, was enormous so I kind of got incredibly excited about the medium so that was sort of part one of the context part two of the context was Sharon and I, Sharon was pregnant with, with, our, with Jasmine our second child we were looking to buy a bigger house and we were just sort of standing at auction one day in East Brighton um, and uh, we'd only discovered that house by accident that morning um, so we hadn't had a chance to look at it properly. And just, you know, the whole frustration of looking for a house and the process of looking for a house came to my head as we're standing at auction and Sharon really wanting to bid. She's like, what would it be? This is March 1697. Jasmine was born on, on June 27. So she's like, Shaz is like, you know, sort of six, six months pregnant due to have, you know, due to have our second child. She kind of wants clarity and certainty. And I'm like, you know what, we've only spent 15 minutes walking around this house. This isn't necessarily the sort of house we're looking for. It's not the area. And then I just sort of had this idea in my head. It's like, oh, my God, the whole process of looking for a house is so frustrating. What about if you did that online? And that was sort of the genesis, if you like. That that insight was the genesis of Seek, which, as you say, uh, which, as you say, you know, we... we the focus with with you know I chatted to Andrew about it pretty pretty soon afterwards and we kicked it around and pretty soon afterwards that idea morphed from from real estate to jobs and um, and that was kind of the you know that was sort of the start of the journey of like I mean it's just an idea the truth is there is some utility there is some value in ideas but you know we were far from the only pe- people to have the ideas of doing an online real estate side or online job side so there is some merit in the idea but it wasn't a particularly unique idea. Back in the 1990s, it wasn't cool to be a startup founder like it is today. And while these days, you probably know lots of people who are either founding or working in startups. When Paul and Andrew started building Seek, it was almost unheard of. The decision was full of risk, but fortunately, Paul had fantastic support from his parents and his wife Sharon. He would end up taking a leave of absence from his job at law firm Arnold Block Liebler to work on Seek full-time. Paul and Andrew would found Seek with a third friend, Matthew Rockman, from a tiny St Kilda office way back in November 1997. 
building a marketplace is a chicken egg problem for founders. How do you get jobs if you don't have any job seekers looking for them? And how do you get job seekers if you have no jobs to show them? Paul and Andrew would raise $1.5 million to build the business. All they had to do was get started. There are a couple of things that, that, that I think we did that kind of um, helped us overcome the problem, you know, in, in a reasonably decent time frame. And, and number one, you know, we, as we went to recruitment firms, and, and most of the, the volume came from recruitment firms initially, we identified they were guys who could provide us with big volumes. They were the wholesale providers, if you like. So they would, you know, an individual medium-sized recruitment firm would have far more jobs to advertise than, say, even a large, large corporate. So we focused on the recruitment firms. And the way, you know, the proposition to them was is that you're advertising a newspaper, you're getting these, you know, you're spending a lot of money, you're getting good results. The internet is the wave of the future with a very, very small incremental spend. You can access a pool of candidates who are tech-savvy, probably pretty young, but also don't forget a lot of what a recruitment firm is doing is marketing to their customers and prospective customers. And we say, look, this is a way in which you could differentiate yourself in a fairly undifferentiated market. This is a way in which you could differentiate yourselves from your competitors by saying, hey, we're advertising on this internet thing. And so there was a lot of focus and that drove the, the sales side. Um, a lot of focus on those conversations and again, not trying to sell Seek as, a, as an alternative to print, but as a supplementary medium. It really only became an alternative to Seek, uh, to print three, four, five years into the journey. And I think it was a pretty ingrained us fairly early on you know how important distribution was and Andrew pursued distribution partnerships with with the folks who were driving a lot of traffic at that point in time and that was particularly people like 9MSN and then over time we had a partnership with Yahoo but if you think about it no one really knew how to use the internet no one knew where to find things no one knew where to go so the starting point were what was then called the portal sites like Yahoo and 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 MSN or 9MSN as it was in Australia I would say you know, you never have this problem completely solved. But I would say about a year into the journey, we had in, in a fair number of categories across most of the major geographies in Australia, a critical mass of job seekers and a critical mass of advertisers. And that flywheel effect, that virtuous cycle that you get with marketplace businesses, that started to kick in. So let's fast forward five years to 2003 and you, and you, you have got this flywheel going. So you, I think you're worth $100 bucks by this point. It's probably three, four hundred million dollars in today's language, and you, I think you raise money from Yahoo. I think Champ. I think the Liverman's who put in money. So, and you, and you get this random call from a lady claiming to be James Packer's secretary. Uh, and obviously, you guys did have the relationship with with um, with E Corp at the time, so there was a sort of indirect relationship with Packer. But I think you guys may have thought it was a prank of, of some sort. So, what, what was? Take me back to that day when when you first come, you first meet James, uh, and well, you, you, I think you realise it wasn't a prank and, and you, you rock up to Crown and you meet James and, and what happens then? Yeah, well, I mean, the context here was, you know, 9MSN and then subsequently E-Corp and particularly E-Corp, which was, for, for you know, people listening to this podcast wouldn't know who E-Corp was, but E-Corp was essentially the pack of families vehicle to, you know, in, invest in internet businesses was run by uh, Daniel Petrie and, and Jeremy Phillips. Um, and, and uh, you know, Daniel's a, a great mate of mine. Jeremy's just invested alongside us a few months ago in, in a portfolio company of ours, Zella. So that sort of relationship with both of them continues 20 years later. And so eCorp became a listed company. I think the Packer family owned 70 or 80%. They were, they, um, they 
basically did a 50-50 JV with eBay to set up eBay in Australia. They did a 50-50 JV with, with MSN, as I mentioned, with Microsoft to set up what became 9MSN in Australia, which for a long time was the leading website in Australia. They did a deal with Charles Schwab, um, et cetera, et cetera. And they wanted to buy 25, 30% of our business. And in the end, we walked away from that deal. It just didn't, it just didn't feel culturally right. There were a whole range of reasons why we decided to walk away, but it just didn't feel right. And they were really honest. We're going to get into the space. And they, then after we walked away, they invested in Monster.com, which was the leading player in the US and, and to effectively partner with Monster in Australia. So they were a competitor of ours. And so one day we get a phone call as you say, from, from Jackie Murray, who was James's EA. And, and, you know, there was, a, there was a whole culture at seek of sort of people playing practical jokes on, on, other, on other people. Uh, you know, one famous story is one of our, we sent one of our sales guys out to a meeting that, to a company that didn't exist in, in Frankston. Um, and, and from those people, those people who don't live in Melbourne, from, from St Kilda Junction, where our office was, to Frankston's probably about a half-hour drive. Um, so he went out there and discovered there wasn't, actually a company there or an office there. So that was sort of part of the, the culture. There was a lot of practical jokes. And so the assumption was that this was a practical joke, but, you know, our then PA sort of uh, rang back, Katie rang back and checked, yes, it was really Jackie Murray and yes, James was going to be in Melbourne the following week. And yes, he was keen to meet. So Andrew and Matt and I trotted down to, to Crown to meet with James. And again, you know, again, this is a relationship that's now, you know, 18 years later, James, a you know, really good friend and been a great supporter and, and, and partner. But he was, he was just so disarming. He was like, we've got this investment monster. I think literally his language was, we've got this investment monster. They're fucking hopeless. You guys have, you guys have won. We'd love to back you guys. That was kind of it. And, um, and so anyway, the initial reaction was, you know, Andrew Matt and I had a bit of a chat chat about it afterwards and it was really clear that we didn't want to do this deal there's no need the first time we've become profitable we weren't looking to raise money at the time we just you know five years into the journey uh generating free cash flow um had a fair bit of or a decent amount of cash in the bank probably wasn't that much in hindsight and so you know it seems like i got a lot of the shit jobs at, at seek I, I do say that facetious do say that facetiously so i got the job of flying up to sydney and politely telling james that, you know thank you and we were very flattered but no we, did, we didn't want them. We didn't, you know, weren't going to proceed with the conversation. Um, but James was just incredibly, he was just so, um, he really, really um, pursued the opportunity. And we kept talking, kept talking. And finally, kind of, you know, a, a few months later, we, we, we did a deal. You've done the pack a deal uh, and you're, you're, you're dominating in Australia. You've, you've seen off Monster and Career One and all those other guys. Uh, and you, then you, you actually went overseas, which, which if you look at the Australian Australian businesses, it's been a bit of a great, I'm, I'm not talking about Atlassian and Canberra who were global business day one, but if you look at Australian businesses that dominated who tried to go overseas, there's this terrible history of, of just stuffing up uh, and, and burning much money. But you guys, have done incredibly well overseas, and I'm not sure if it's even bigger than Australia now uh, or, or not. Um, how did you? How did you approach the international challenge back in those sort of, I guess, mid two thousands? Yeah, and this sort of journey started in two thousand and six, and I think again to some extent. I mean, we were a business that to some extent was defined by geography. I mean, a lot of these markets 
have been won globally, not locally. You know, like a business like Google, for example, is very much a global business. And even before it had a physical presence in a lot of different markets in the world, it was still the dominant search engine. The marketplace categories of like jobs and, and real estate and, and uh, cars were different. They were very much historically won by local players and having a presence on the ground, a sales presence, um, local relationships is really, really important. So if you look at even today, you know, the, 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 the players that have won in different markets, they are local, they are local players. So real estate businesses like Rightmove in the UK, for example, and REA in Australia and Zillow in the US and so on, et cetera, et cetera, as an example. And so the story for us was, you know, we saw through that. And again, you know, Andrew very much drove the thinking here and, and drove and drove the execution. The, the, sort of the thinking here was, as we were seeing through 2003, 2004, 2005, the benefits of being a strong market leader in a marketplace business, where we were seeing the rate of migration from traditional media, i.e. print to online, actually accelerating. And so that was just an unbelievable sweet spot in, in, in the period of the business. And I mean, again, coming back to, to PBL, coming back to James, credit to him, he kind of recognised that there was going to be an enormous period of value creation for Seek, which there was. And so we sort of took a step back and we basically said, look, where, you know, as you, if you can be the number one player, if you can be the dominant player in a market, and as that market really starts to move online, these businesses are just amazing businesses. You're generating incredible value for your job seekers and your, adver- and, and your employers and recruitment firms. And the dollars are going to shift really, really rapidly from print to online. And we were a small, relatively small company. And these offline markets, these print markets, were still pretty large markets. It was about $800 billion, for example, in Australia and New Zealand across online em- uh, across employment in the newspaper when we got started. So $800 million. 20 plus years ago, it was a lot of money. It was a very, very high margin market as well. And so that was kind of the insight, which is, okay, we don't want to go to markets like US, UK, where there's already winners or people look like they're winners and a lot of the gains have been had. Let's get into some young, well, I say young, early stage markets, markets where we can shape the outcome, where you know we can either invest in the number one player or there might be three or four or five players that are sort of still fighting each other for for sort of market leadership. And if we can help those, that player, those players become number one in their market and kind of benefit as they ride the wave as the market migrates to online, we can kind of replicate what's occurred in Australia in much, much bigger markets. And so that was a sort of a store of the thinking that led to our investments in in Brazil, um, in in China, Brazil and China were the initial two, two businesses. It wasn't always a, a linear story, particularly with China, with, with Jaopin. It was, you know, in truth, the number three player when we invested. It was a lot of time and effort and, and blood and sweat and tears to sort of, you know, help drive the growth of that business. And uh, look, it's been, uh, you know, I think, you know, the it's obviously was an important part of the, the journey for, for Seek. And it was, a, you know, it was, a, it was obviously, a, you know, part of the journey was a lot of fun. It led to, it led to a lot of value creation. By 2011, Seek was performing incredibly well, when Paul did something almost no superstar CEO ever does. He self-selected out of the business while he was still on top of his game. Paul was only 43 at the time, and he'd built Seek into an incredible empire over the past 14 years. But it was time for Paul to hand over the reins to his brother Andrew, who would take over as sole CEO of the business. I would say it's probably a sort of a 12-month process. And again, you can't put a, 
a definite figure on it. But I think, you know, I love, you know, there was 14 years at sea was the most amazing experience. Um, you know, we t- talked about it earlier about just so much fun and building a great business and a great team of people really passionate. It really felt like a family. But I think for a bunch of reasons, it, it felt like a good time. As I thought it through, it felt like a good time for a change for me. Obviously, made easier the fact for, for me knowing that Andrew would, would still be there. And, 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 you know, if you look at the success of the business in the decade after I left, you know, the business didn't exactly, the business didn't exactly, you know, miss me or notice me leaving, which is, which is, which is amazing. But I think for me, you know, there was probably, I'd done, you know, for example, I'd probably done, again, this is not a big deal. I mean, lots of people kind of, you know, work under more pressure and, and all that sort of stuff. But I'd probably done, I remember waking up, I'd done about my 20th trip to China in the previous, you know, four or five years, I was doing about five trips to China a year. I remember waking up that flight where you wake up in Hong Kong and then you then you sort of wait for a couple of hours in Hong Kong, take the flight to Beijing. You know, I was pretty exhausted. I was probably reflecting on another budget cycle coming up, um, you know, where we'd done, you know, 14 budget cycles and stuff like that. And it just felt like, you know, it felt like I wasn't as, as passionate and as excited about the job. I was still as as passionate and excited about the, the team and, and the company, but the job itself, it just felt like a really good time for a change. And so, you know, that obviously that isn't an overnight thing. It was a series of conversations and Andrew and I chatted about it and chatted to the board and then sort of made the decision. Um, it must have been late, you know, made the formal decision in in, uh, in late, uh, I'm going to get my years rise, in late 2000 and uh, late 2011 no, 2010, um, that it was sort of time for me to sort of to, to, to move on. Um, I finished up in uh, I finished up in in April, in April or May 2011, and uh, took a six month break with my family. And it just you know you can't you can't do things forever. It felt like a good time for me. It was a good time for the business. The fact that the, the business thrived without me, I think, spoke to you know, the relative importance or otherwise, you know, that the business had this just amazing group of people led by Andrew that was going to continue being incredibly successful whether or not I was there. And so that that made it so much, so much easier. But I'm a great believer in change. I'm a great believer in new experiences. And, you know, it was in some respects a hard decision, but also knew it would lead to me having opportunities to do other things in my career, which is what's happened the last decade. And I feel, you know, equally grateful for the opportunities I've had in the last, in last 10 years. Let's talk about that. So you've, you've left see, six months of doing some family stuff and you start a, a couple of, sort of almost venture capital slash in later stage funds. Uh, I think the original square peg model, which is obviously your, 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 the fund that you started, was a bit, was, wasn't the sort of usual VC model. I think you did a, a sort of investment by investment type fund. Talk me through the, how you went about to starting square peg and I think it was, was it Wentworth. Victoria Capital, maybe at the time, um, Victoria, uh, and how that sort of came about. Yeah, look again. I mean, it's you know sort of an interesting story, and the story you know story evolved. I mean, it really came out of two completely separate conversations with with friends. One with with Justin Liberman and, and Barry Brott. Justin had been an early investor in Seek, as you mentioned. Barry and had, had worked with Justin for the last ten years or so. They'd done a lot of early stage investing that are passionate about the area, had done it perhaps, you know, you know, not in a necessarily a structured methodical way, but they'd done it with, with some really great success. Um, Tony was an old friend of mine from school. His career was investment banking. We sort of had two separate conversations about 
two sort of what, what were initially two separate vehicles. One was very much a early stage, sort of seed stage vehicle. The other was much more sort of a growth stage vehicle. Victoria Capital, as you identified, Square Peg Ventures was what we called the vehicle that, that Justin and Barry and I chatted about. Initially, we were just using our own, investing our own capital in some early stage businesses. You know, UpGuard was one of those very first investments. Uh, you know, very luckily and spectacularly, Canva was one of those very, very first investments. Um, you know, within 12 months or so, we brought those two businesses together into, into Square Peg. Um, and, um, you know, again, probably within another six months or so, we'd open up to other investors. These were people who we knew really well. They're in our network. People were close to. So that was sort of the genesis story. But, but as by way of background, if you go back to 2011 in Australia, there was essentially no venture capital funds in Australia. And, um, you know, there were, there, were, there were no venture capital funds. There were a few that had started earlier. We were backed, you mentioned, by Champ Ventures. There were a few other funds. Those funds, for one reason or another, had kind of disappeared or imploded. Mostly, in most cases, Champ was a bit of an exception because they performed pretty well. Um, most of them had performed spectacularly badly. You know, if you think about some of the great Aussie companies that emerged during that period, like the Atlassians, as an example, the Seeks and the car sales and the REAs, all of these funds, pretty much without exception, hadn't, hadn't invested in any of these companies that had done well. And so that early generation of funds had disappeared. And we were just absolutely passionate about the need and the importance for Australia to become a more innovative economy. We also felt that, you know, we just felt that not enough of the best and brightest in Australia were, were going in the direction of startups that was starting to change. And we were really confident that could change over the next five or 10 years because there's no lack of talent in Australia. And we sort of felt that the, you know, perhaps the biggest gap at that time, obviously the core ingredient to building a successful technology ecosystem is the founders and the other people who join those businesses. But the fact that there was such an absence of venture capital in Australia, a regular sources of capital to start and grow these businesses, we thought was a massive hindrance. And so it's no coincidence, for example, that Atlassian was bootstrapped, that, that Mike and Scott, sorry, and, and, and Vardo was bootstrapped, and Campaign Monitor was bootstrapped, and a whole lot of other examples. I'm not sure, Adam, you know, how you got your initial funding for luxury, yeah. luxury escapes. We're, so we're, we're bootstrapped as well. So bo- yeah. bootstrapped, but you were bootstrapped as well. And so there was no coincidence. And like, and by the way, that wasn't, that wasn't, in a lot of cases, that didn't prove to be a barrier. I mean, after all, it's a $100 billion US market cap. But clearly, it is hard to build a, a sustainable, fantastic technology ecosystem without regular source of funding. And so we were really determined to come in and, and be part of a solution in Australia. And as it turns out, you know, soon after we started, you know, some other really good funds emerged. And again, in some ways, it's still a little bit coincidental that we saw, you know, Seek emerge at a similar time to realestate.com.au and car sales. And to see other firms like Blackbird and Airtree emerge soon after we did, it just was a sort of degree of serendipity. And, and to some extent, you know, their success has been our success and vice versa, because it's been good for all of us. And of course, most importantly, great for founders that there's been um, some, some great sources of capital for founders in Australia and, and a lot of other great funds have emerged. And of course, these founders have done remarkable jobs. And as a result, you know, venture funds like ours have been really lucky and delivered great results, and that's created a virtuous cycle where more and more investors want to invest. I think you say it's lucky, but I think there's a, if you look at some of the invest, investments you guys have had, obviously Canva's the, the, the big one for everyone, but but you, you guys are in Airwallex, which is almost a decacorn, you're in Athena, in Deputy, in Rocked, which is, they're all unicorns or, or close to it. What do you guys look for when, you, when you're when speaking to, to, to Mel when she's got a 
no revenue or minimal revenue and what what attracts attracted you to Canberra and to 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 rock when, when Bruce was still pretty pretty early in the journey I would say for an early stage investor we're a pretty high conviction investor and so if you actually look at I would say where some other funds have done a better job than us is they've had a broader range of investments and it kind of is if you think about it you make more investments at the seed stage a lot of them don't work out but a small number of them them do work out and you have this really broad top of the funnel and if you like each of these investments is kind of like a, a long dated call option where you know hopefully a small number would be successful and you continue to back them and, and back them really really aggressively and I think we've seen a few funds in Australia do that really really well. We probably haven't made quite as many investments if particularly if you look just at investments in the Australia market I mean, it's still a considerable number I think we've invested about 25 companies in Australia so it's not a it's not a trivial number maybe it's more like 30 actually but it's not a massive number so our hit rate has been, you know, I think on any measure has been really, really good to have, have you, you mentioned some of the companies, but companies like Canfair, Wallex, Athena, Deputy, Rocked, in, in Zella in that group of, you know, sort of 30 or so, and I've missed a, a bunch of really, really good businesses in there. Um, and so I think we, we are a pretty high conviction investor. And it comes down to, to theme and team. Um, what's the problem they're solving? How is the problem being solved? When is the problem being solved? Timing is incredibly important. Why is the problem being solved? So understanding the founder narrative, and I think, you know, Canva and Air Wallex and Athena are three great examples. Actually, Deputy as well, Rocked is as well. All of those companies are great examples of founders, you know, the why bit, that they're just a really comparative narrative Narrative why these founders were exactly the right founders to, to, to build these businesses. And then, of course, the last question, which is by far the most important question, is who is solving the problem? And and kind of you know building relationship with the team and getting to getting to know the team. And we are unashamedly a founder first fund. I mean, there's some great funds like Sequoia is a good example. It's not that other funds don't think team is important, but Sequoia, for example, is a fund that perhaps focuses much more on the theme and traction than they do on team. They've you know that's been their that's been their DNA for 50 years. And you know Don Don since Don Valentine started the firm in the, in the 1970s. We are, again, all, it is a spectrum. All these factors are important, but we overemphasise team. You know, and again, I look at a business like Air Wallex as an example. I think they are just unique founders. Jack is a very special, very, very special CEO. You know, Nathan and Michael are just, you know, extraordinary founders at, at uh, Athena, et cetera. And so we, I think, have a... Have developed a good ability to identify founders who we think can build not just good businesses but can build very very important businesses that can scale over a long period of time. Squarepeg had gone on to become one of Australia's leading venture capital firms and while that might keep the average person busy for Paul it wasn't quite enough. He was selected to become one of only eight AFL commissioners alongside AFL CEO Gil McLaughlin and Chairman Richard Goida. The AFL Commission is responsible for the operational performance of the Australian Football League. Paul would also join the board of West Farmers, one of Australia's largest employers. Paul's experience was diverse, but everything was starting to match up with a plan he'd made for himself back when he stepped down as CEO of Seek. When I was in the, when I took that six months off and we and the, we lived overseas, and, you know, sort of established a bit of a simple framework for things I might look at. One was, you know, one was I wanted to work with people that I really liked, really trusted, high integrity people, smart people. Number one, 
Number two is I wanted to do things where I thought I could contribute and actually have it have an impact. Um, and number three, I wanted to learn. And I wanted to, to grow and learn and have different experiences and stuff like that. And so, you know, sort of the opportunities, the square peg opportunities sort of evolved, as did West Farmers, as did AFL. It sort of, it's, you know, again, there was sort of a degree of serendipity with, with all with all of those things. I mean, West Farmers for six years, I stepped off the board in 2018. I love my six years there. High integrity company. I particularly enjoyed being engaged with retail. I think, look, I think it was funny. I was reading a story. You know, I used to get, I'd say, a little bit frustrated, particularly like the Bunnings business, where I thought an incredible business, one of the the great companies, the great companies in, in, in Australia. It was pretty slow to embrace a lot. I remember, you know, John, who was CEO and I at, at the time, and I had a lot, and he's a great retailer, had a bunch of really good conversations about that. And we, you know, we agreed about certain things. We agreed to disagree. And of course, you are, you are one director on a board. And it's the management team who's running these businesses day to day. And so there's kind of a couple of barriers there, but it doesn't mean you can't have influence and you can't have great conversations. And so, and by the way, the other thing is, it's not like everything I say is right. Like there's a lot of stuff that comes out of my mouth that turns out to be completely and utter, completely utter crap. So you need, to, you need to bring a lot of humility to organisations like West Farmers and AFL, which are incredible organizations with very smart people with all sorts of different backgrounds and different experiences you bring to bear one perspective so that's the first thing is, is i think you need to you, you need to bring to bear your experiences your perspectives share how you think about things but also be humble enough and say that is a that is one perspective in a much more complex matrix of, of issues and, and, and conversations i think the other thing for me and hopefully i've done this okay is if you're kind of sitting around the table, say the AFL Commission, and you're just the digital guy, just the technology guy, and every time you open your mouth, it's about some issue about technology and telling the team that they're not doing good enough on this stuff and this is how we did it at Seek, whatever. Firstly, you, you become pretty boring, but secondly, you're pretty limited. And hopefully every director, all, all directors in organisations, and this is certainly the case in AFL, I've loved, I mean, I've, you know, there are, there are eight of us on the commission at the moment. Uh, there's probably been about 15 or 16 people who've been on the commission at different times. Just a great, incredible group of people, current group, the, the previous group. All of those people bring different perspectives and experiences and stuff. But when they sit around the table, it's not like, you know, sort of Helen Milroy bringing her perspective as, you know, a psychiatrist or the first Indigenous woman on the commission and that is absolutely who she is and part of what she brings to the table but she brings so much more to the table and so much richer than just you know always talking about mental health issues yes when she talks about mental health issues everyone kind of listens incredibly carefully and, and what she says carries more weight than you know than, than one, if one of the rest of us are talking about this issue but but it's the ability for directors to engage across a broad range of, uh, of issues and, and i think that's what makes you know that's what makes great directors you and Andrew are both incredibly humble, uh, despite the massive success you've had. But uh, it's just fun. You can't uh, you can't look past the fact that you guys are both incredibly wealthy now. You're probably, if not billionaires, you probably will be at some point. So that's a, obviously had a, a very middle class sort of upbringing. That's a it's a pretty significant change. How, how does that? Not so much impact your life, but how does that impact sort of the decisions you make and, and how, you, how you raise your kids? And, and obviously, there's a lot, a lot of successful people who are very worried about the impact that wealth has on their kids, who, who and often it can be can be a negative, not a positive. How, how do you sort of deal with that? 
Yeah, look, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot, um, Adam, to unpack there. And I mean, I think the first thing, the comment about about being about being humble. I mean, I'll, I'll let I'll let others form the view on whether that's the case. Well, I did say to someone recently who said, you know, describe themselves as, as humble. I said, I think it's an it's an oxymoron to describe yourself as humble. I think if you describe yourself as humble, you probably almost by definition, um, you're not. Um, Look, I think, you know, are there challenges associated with becoming very, very wealthy? Are there challenges growing up in a wealthy family? Yes, but they're pretty damn trivial compared to the challenges of not being wealthy or not being able to afford to put food on the table or being worried about losing your job or people have gone through just awful experiences in COVID where they might have been worried about keeping their job or, you know, their business that they run, run for the last 20 years has closed down, the business they work for is closed down, they've got to educate the school age kids at home um, during, you know, again, it's just, you know, the sort of experiences people have had in the last couple of years, you know, has been for a lot of people incredibly rough. And so I think, you know, we're, we're conscious, I'm conscious as an individual, we're con- and I know this is true with Andrew as well, we're, we're conscious as a family how incredibly lucky and how privileged we are. You know, our kids, Sharon and my kids are now early, in their early 20s. They're sort of making their own way. In, 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 you know, we had five of us living together through pretty much through for most of COVID, which is amazing. We've now got, you know, a son who's, who's moved to London, a, a daughter who's, um, who's about to start a career in Sydney and, and our, and our youngest son who's still at uni and still living in Melbourne, but also running, running a business as well as being a full-time student. So the kids have, have a great sense of responsibility. They're really focused. We're starting to interact a lot more as a family about issues relating to philanthropy, business. I mean, we had, there's a woman called Jane Houston, who some people who listen to, uh, who listen to your podcast might know from Igniting Change is a really amazing, special woman. You know, we had Jane come and talk to, we, we do a, you know, family meeting periodically. We just chat about important issues related to philanthropy, business, et cetera. And Jane came in and spoke to our family. So it's really humbling when you get people like that, Jane coming in and talking about her journey and what she's done. And so I think as a family, we're starting to get a really nice rhythm about, um, you know, the kids will pursue their own individual paths, their own careers, they'll pursue their dreams, but also the opportunity for us to do things collaboratively as a family and particularly to, to increase our focus on philanthropy over the next 10 or 20 years, which is something, something you know, I think all of us, all five of us are really, really excited about. So you did a, a huge pivot at 29, another pivot at 43. Is there, a, is there any, any more pivots left in you? Look, I mean, I really, I really love what I'm doing. I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, we were talking about role models earlier. I mean, my dad, my dad's 80, what's dad now, 84 or 83. No, he's 84, he turned 84 in July. Dad's 84 and still works pretty much full time. I mean, you know, he's very lucky. My mum's very lucky. We're very lucky as a family. They're still healthy and, and, in, and, and in great, great shape. Um, and so, you know, that probably, I, I hope that I'm healthy enough and, and, mentally sharp enough to be doing interesting stuff when, when I'm in my 80s, assuming, assuming I'm healthy and still around. Um, and so I don't really have a plan for what the future holds, but I love what I do, I'm really passionate about it. I think my great passion is is startups, is young companies. And so I, I get a lot of that through Square Peg. I get a lot of that pleasure. Probably the only thing I've done in my career, truthfully, where I'd say where the level of passion and what I do approaches what you get from your own startup or backing startups is actually AFL. Um, and that's because it is just such an incredible, people are passionate about footy, I'm passionate about footy, I love footy, but also you get this 
you, it's just so incredibly important to the community. So you feel this enormous sense of responsibility because so many people really care about what goes on. And so I just want to be involved, working with great people, doing interesting things, but there will always be, it will always be around, I think the, the great bulk of it will be around disruptive technology, um, founders, um, people, you know, taking risks, pursuing dreams, maybe more of that 10 years, 20 years from now might be as much social enterprises as for-profit businesses. Who knows? I mean, I think one of the great changes we're seeing in the world today is there are so many more businesses that are set out from day one on as for-profit and for-purpose at the same time. And, and companies like Zeroco that we invest in recently is a great example of that. Amber, another Aussie company we invest in is a great example of that. And so I love that combination. If you ask me genuinely, what, what are the things I'm most passionate about? The businesses that have profit motive because I think you attract the best and brightest people. There's a real drive and focus, but businesses that also have a really important purpose as part of what they do. And so I suspect one way or another that'll be I'll be around those sorts of organizations for, you know, most if not all of all of the rest of my career, however long that might be. And that was Paul Bassett, founder of Seek.com and SquarePeg Ventures. And you've been listening to From Zero with me, Adam Schwab. Producers are Lindsey Green and Ed Gooden. For more episodes, search From Zero Podcast. Listener.